16 men on a dead man's chest Yo ho ho and a bottle of gum We take what we need and the devil with the rest Yo ho ho and a bottle of gum All right, we are back. In our second segment today, I want to talk about some science stuff because that's usually fun and interesting. Um, although in this case, what I want to start with is something that is uh, good but a little disturbing. It turns out that this month, January, uh, marks the 50th anniversary of the Surgeon General's report on smoking and health. This was released on January 11th, 1964. Note to The Economist, it was the report that showed, without a whiff of doubt, that cigarettes kill. Now, what's interesting is that um, back in 64, they released the news of this, uh, these findings on a Saturday so it wouldn't roil the stock market. Smoking and Health was released by Surgeon General Luther Terry. It ran to 387 pages in length. Uh, it was the product of 10 scientists. It was noted that all were men, half were smokers. They analyzed 7,000 studies which, to assess the effects of tobacco on human health. Now, it had been suspected by many that cigarettes were bad for people. The conclusions of the report were described as incendiary, which were, quote, cigarette smoking is causally related to lung cancer in men, unquote. No fudging, it is causally related. Of course, they weren't able to say the same thing for women. The data for women, they said, pointed in the same direction. The Economist published a graph which came out of smoking and health, which, uh, which showed rather clearly how smokers died younger. should be noted that a year later, Congress required health warnings on every packet of smokes. Public understanding of the risks of smoking changed even faster. Noted the magazine ads in the 1950s had claimed that tobacco was good for you. After the report, millions of Americans quit puffing. In the last 50 years, cigarette consumption per adult has fallen 72% in America. This report back in 64 called smoking a habit, not an addiction, noted The Economist. But apart from that, it hit the coffin nail on the head. Oh, and for the record, cigarettes are not a habit. They're an addiction. Although it does amaze me how long after 1964, e even to this day, in fact, the tobacco, the tobacco companies have been able to convince people that, well, it's not, it's not, really, it's not really addicting. It's not like heroin. And it's true. It's not addicting like heroin. I know when I was a medical student and resident and I was working in the various hospitals I, I trained in, I used to ask the heroin addicts which was easier to quit, cigarettes or heroin. <laughs> At least three-quarters of the time they would say, oh, I can give up heroin, but I, I can't stop smoking. It's really curious to try and turn the clock back to the 1950s and wonder what people were thinking when it comes to cigarettes and the prediction that they may in the future harm your health. And it's curious to note that there was some light shed on this by Nate Silver in his book, The Signal and the Noise, Why So Many Predictions Fail, But Some Don't. We talked about a couple of chapters in this book some months ago and said we should return to it, and, and now we're doing so. And then a chapter on the book on sports betting and how a savvy sports better can make money. If he is savvy and able to assess the true odds of something and finds out that the, the betting line is quite divergent, he can use that to his advantage. But you gotta be, you got to be pretty sharp to do this. And uh, as Las Vegas proves every day, most people 
are not that sharp, and most people lose money. Although it's kind of curious that some people who consistently win on sports betting eventually get closed out. They don't want their bets. But in his chapter on sports betting, Mr. Silver takes a divergence into the world of uh, Thomas Bayes. And I think we should follow this diversion of his. Noted Nate Silver, Thomas Bayes was an English minister who was probably born in 1701. Very little about his life is known. Even though he lent his name to an entire branch of statistics and probably math's most famous theorem. It's not even clear at this point what Bayes looked like. Silver notes that the portrait of him that is commonly used in encyclopedia articles may have been misattributed. Bayes' name is immortal, however, because of his famous work, an essay toward solving a problem in the doctrine of chances. It was not published until after his death, when it was brought to the Royal Society's attention by a friend named Richard Price. That was back in 1763. The work dealt with how we go about formulating probabilistic beliefs when we encounter new data. Noted Nate Silver, the argument made by Bayes and Price is not that the world is uncertain. It turns out that Bayes was a believer in divine perfection, but he was also an advocate of Isaac Newton. Newton's work suggested that nature follows regular and predictable laws. And Bayes' work turns out to be a statement expressed both philosophically and mathematically about how we learn about the universe and that we learn about it through approximation, getting closer and closer to the truth as we gather more evidence. Note Silver, this contrasted with the more skeptical view of the Scottish philosopher David Hume, who argued, and this is a philosopher for you, that since we could not be certain that the sun would rise, a prediction that it would was inherently no more rational than one that it wouldn't. You know, I sort of hate to admit it, but that was just, I think, one reason why I never took a class in philosophy. But noted Silver, the Bayesian viewpoint, to the contrary, regarded rationality as a probabilistic matter. In essence, Bayes and his buddy Price were telling David Hume, don't blame nature if you're too dumb to understand it. If you step out of your shell and make some predictions about behavior, perhaps you'll get a little closer to the truth. And I'm not going to try and summarize the whole argument or the whole chapter here, but, uh, but it turns out that Bayes proposed that as one goes along, it's possible to be less and less wrong, a point echoed by our, our favorite science writer, Isaac Asimov, who once wrote an essay titled The Relativity of Wrong. Asimov was motivated to do this after a woman uh, berated him at uh, some book signing he was at, saying, well, you know, you scientists are wrong all the time. You're always changing your theories. And I forget what it was uh, she was advocating, Atlantis or UFOs or creationism or some such nonsense. But at any rate, Asimov said, you know, there is a certain relativity of how wrong you can be. And according to Nate Silver, pretty much everybody accepts uh, these days that uh, this Bayesian approach is sensible. What really attracted my attention was the fact that for a while, Bayes was sort of in eclipse. He had a very powerful intellectual rival who, for a while, carried the day. His name was Ronald Fisher. He was born in 1890, about 120 years after Bayes' death. He was an English statistician and a biologist, and a much more colorful character than Bayes. Said Nate Silver, Fisher was almost in the English intellectual tradition of Christopher Hitchens. He was handsome, but a slovenly dresser, always smoking his pipe or his cigarettes, constantly picking fights with real and imagined rivals. He was apparently a mediocre lecturer, but an incisive writer with a flair for drama and an engaging, much-sought-after dinner companion. 
Now, to his credit, Silver notes that Fisher is probably more responsible than any other individual for the statistical methods that remain in wide use today. He developed the terminology of the statistically significant test and much of the methodology behind it. But it turns out he was no fan of Bayes. Fisher was the first person to use the term Bayesian in a published article, and he used it in a derogatory way. Now, apparently what irked Fisher about Bayes was that when when Bayes would try to make predictions about the future, he would uh, base them upon prior assumptions of what something's probability was. And that didn't sit well with Fisher. Fisher felt that you should gather a lot of data to try and assess what something's prior probability was in order to go forward into the future. This is a brand of statistics usually called frequentism today, although it's sometimes also called Fisherian as opposed to Bayesian. And while this does make a certain amount of sense, go out and gather some data so you know uh, where something stands. Uh, Nate Silver notes that uh, bias can certainly still enter into the equations, uh, as it were. Silver noted that even something like political polling, which you know should lend itself toward uh, being able to base uh, prior assumptions, uh, bias still creeps in. Some polling firms consistently show a bias toward one or another party. Apparently, Thomas Bayes had a thing or two to say about this uh, even hundreds of years ago. He, he noted that if you're using a biased instrument, it doesn't matter how many measurements you take, you're aiming at the wrong target. So I started this digression talking about uh, cigarettes. What's this got to do with cigarettes? Well, hold on. To quote from Nate Silver, Fisher mellowed out toward the end of his career, occasionally even praising Bayes. Some of the methods he developed over his long career were really compromises between Bayesian and frequentist approaches. But, noted Silver, in the last years of his life, Fisher made a grievous error of judgment that helps to demonstrate the limitations of his approach. The issue concerned cigarette smoking and lung cancer. To quote from The Signal and the Noise, the 1950s, a large volume of research, some of it using standard statistical methods and some using Bayesian ones, claimed there was a connection between the two, a connection that is, of course, widely accepted today. Fisher spent much of his late life fighting against these conclusions, publishing letters in prestigious publications, including the British Medical Journal and Nature. He did not deny that the statistical relationship between cigarettes and lung cancer was fairly strong in these studies, but claimed it was a case of correlation mistaken for causation, comparing it to a historical correlation between apple imports and marriage rates in England. At one point, he argued that lung cancer caused cigarette smoking, not the other way around. The idea apparently was that people might take up smoking for relief from their lung pain. Silver goes on, many a scientific finding that are commonly accepted today would have been dismissed as hooey at one point. This was sometimes because of the cultural taboos of the day, such as Galileo's claim the earth revolves around the sun, but at least as often because the data required to analyze the problem did not yet exist. Note Silver, we might let Fisher off the hook if it turned out there was not compelling evidence to suggest a link between cigarettes and lung cancer by the 1950s. Scholars who have gone back and looked at the evidence that existed at that time concluded, however, that there was plenty of it. A wide variety of statistical and clinical tests conducted by a wide variety of researchers in a wide variety of contexts demonstrated the causal relationship between them. And I gotta say, I'm not surprised to read this. Asked Nate Silver, so why did Fisher dismiss the theory? One reason may have been that he was a paid consultant of the tobacco companies. Gee, do you think? Another may have been that he was a lifelong smoker himself. 
course, it was noted that Fisher did like to be a contrarian and to be controversial and disliked anything that smacked of Puritanism. Hmm. We don't find that to be a good enough reason. We at Radio Parallax like to be a bit contrarian and controversial, and we dislike anything that smacks of Puritanism, but we're pretty damn sure (laughs) that cigarettes are really bad for you, and I'm pretty sure we'd have known that back in the 50s and talked about it on the radio if we'd been on the air back then. And for the record, Mr. McMillan is absolutely positive (laughs) that lung cancer does not cause smoking, and he's going to stand by that one. Anyway, Silver concludes by noting that the Fisherian statistical methods do not encourage us to think about which correlations imply causations and which ones do not. He notes that it's perhaps no surprise that after a lifetime of thinking that way, Fisher lost his ability to tell the difference. But uh, we mentioned sports betting a second ago in, in, in relationship to this chapter we were quoting from. And there's an interesting piece on this same subject in New Scientist. The piece in New Scientist is is titled Tackling the Match Fixers. Subheadline notes that online betting is luring criminal syndicates to rig sporting contests, but bookmakers have the tools to hit back, at least according to industry experts. Said Mr. Ferguson, you might think of match fixing in sports as a new phenomenon encouraged by the advent of online betting and controlled by Asian gambling syndicates with unlimited sums to wager on trivial events. But that's not the full story. Now, what surprises me is that how much money you can make betting on some obscure things. In fact, uh, well, that's where the cheaters want to go. The piece notes that recent match-fixing arrests in the UK have focused on leagues in which the clubs are at best semi-professional, which means the players still rely significantly on day jobs, which in turn means it might not take a lot of money to manipulate some of them. The piece notes that bookmakers are aware of this and now have sophisticated methods of spotting anomalies that might signal something is amiss. They use complex mathematical models that analyze vast sets of statistics coupled with close monitoring of competitors and customers. And they're spending a lot of money to keep tabs on this. I have to say, it does not surprise this correspondent that a lot of this stuff is focusing on soccer. It does seem to me that a sport where a a nil-nil tie is common (laughs) is a place where it might be easy to throw a match by letting somebody score. The piece notes that in 1897, during the English football season, the teams Stoke and Burnley intentionally drew so that both would qualify for the first division the following season. Apparently this does go back to ancient times. Athletes in the Olympics back in the old days did occasionally bribe their rivals to let them win. The piece also notes that the allegations persist that Peru conveniently lost 6 nothing to Argentina in the 1978 Football World Cup in return for an aid package. Of course, one thing uh, that was not noted in this uh, piece, which does appear in a uh, British publication, after all, was the 1919 World Series, which was fixed. Yeah, legendary gambler Arnold Rothstein fixed baseball's World Series and was never, I think, charged with a crime. The baseball players who threw the series, and a couple of them who apparently didn't even, didn't even really participate, uh, were, were tossed out of Major League Baseball. But the guy that arranged the whole thing, no penalty. This kind of reminds you of Wall Street, doesn't it? At any rate, the piece by Scott Ferguson notes the upshot uh, of all of this uh, carefully scanning bets and how odds are changing is that if you want to bet big on an amateur or otherwise obscure football match through regulated betting channels, you're going to be out of luck. And apparently if you want to get involved in throwing a match, you may get in more trouble than people did in the past. 
Bookmakers are going to report suspicious matches to an industry body for further investigation. In fact, in July of 2012, the Norwegian Football Association postponed a match between teams Il Kisa and Ham Karn. I hope I'm pronouncing those right in the country's second division as a result of intelligence from their national betting monopoly. Anyway, when it comes to all this stuff, uh, Radio Parallax is going to follow the advice of David Letterman, who always points out to his audience while doing stupid pet tricks that, uh, as always, there's no wagering. All right, I would like to cite one little bit of follow-up as regards the talk we had a few weeks back um, about how this uh, miracle methods of treating infection... Fresh air and sunlight (laughs) might be needed more in the future. And in that exact vein, a man named Graham Jones wrote New Scientist in regards to that piece um, on this subject, which I think is worth quoting from. said, Mr. Jones, Frank Swain's look at the sideline antibiotic role of fresh air and sunlight in controlling infection raises questions about hospital design. I was a medical student in the 1980s in hospitals built in the Victorian era. Huge, airy spaces flooded with natural light. They almost seem to be half outside. Now, many hospitals have low ceilings, slit-like windows that barely open, and fluorescent lights. With the lack of fresh air and 24-hour artificial lighting, is it not surprising that patients succumb to infections or get depressed? Our new hospitals are designed to reduce infection risk and be cleaner and more efficient. But if such designs add to morbidity, perhaps we need a rethink. And perhaps we do, Dr. Jones. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Actually, this is the special Radio Parallax St. Kitts edition. And we've got a few more fun things to talk about in our third segment. So please, take a chance on us.